Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels, from those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession to those who've never had their voice heard before. In this two-part episode, we discuss pain management, the impact of scheduling change on the industry, and how people access pain treatment and the need to separate population-wide policy decisions from the individual care that people with pain deserve. Jacinta Johnson talks about rescheduling pain medicines as the first step in addressing pain treatment, but we need to understand that there will never be one good treatment for pain. Yeah, uh, so I think that the changes to the codeine scheduling were a useful first step in getting patients to talk more with their health professionals about their pain, but they're certainly not sufficient uh, to address the pain issues that we have in our community on their own. Um, I don't know exactly how we handle those issues overall, uh, but I think a really important point for pharmacists is around the way we talk about pain and that there's not going to be a medication that's just going to fix it. And I don't know that that message is being consistently taught across pharmacy Uh, And it it sort of has been a change in the way we think about pain, I guess, over the last few decades. So there probably are lots of pharmacists that could benefit from upskilling in that area around the language we use for pain and around talking to patients about um, living with their pain and um, changing the way they do things or um, their expectations so that they continue um, and to improve their quality of life rather than completely relieve their pain those kind of conversations are not quick conversations uh, and we should be remunerated for providing that education service for our patients. So the pain meds check program, once that gets off the ground, uh, will hopefully provide that mechanism for uh, being funded to talk to patients and talk through their entire pain management plan and how the medications fit into that as just a, a part of helping them to manage to um, do all the things they want to do with their pain not necessarily completely eliminating that pain there is a risk that it it may slip off the radar now and I think that's a really important role for our professional bodies in pharmacy to play so uh, we need to be that voice for our patients getting out there and making sure that chronic pain stays on the um, the register for people that are making decisions around funding Uh, And there are other bodies that are willing to work with us on that. So I know Scriptwise are very active uh, in their advocacy around managing pain and prescription medicine use uh, in general. And also groups like uh, Pain Australia, they're providing that voice for the consumers. Um, They know that the services we've got at the moment are suboptimal and they will continue to lobby for that. Um, So I think as a pharmacy profession, we should continue to do the same. Uh, And not just for services, but also for research because the medicines that we have at the moment for pain they're not great and when we you know get this new evidence to show that um, this treatment shouldn't be used we don't necessarily have an option to replace it with even for those short-term treatments where we do need some something um, for the patient the other aspect of the answer I guess is uh, that even though coding products are not over-the-counter anymore, that doesn't mean that you as the pharmacist no longer have input into that patient's treatment. So if you're getting prescriptions for coding products, whether they're low-dose coding products or uh, you know, Panadine 4, then 
you can still talk to the patient about whether or not that's the path they want to go down. Do they still want to be taking this medication? Do they know what other options they have? And you can still talk to their prescribers about that. If anything, it might make it easier to talk to the prescribers about the pain management than if codeine was still over the counter. So we can still be having those conversations and um, make sure that uh, GPs that we're working with are um, actively looking for the best possible option for their patients as well. Sam Kattenpah discusses how codeine scheduling is only the start of the overall pain treatment conversation. Um, I think in the Northern Territory we've been pretty lucky with this. Um, We, like most states, we had issues around uh, large use of over-the-counter codeine. Uh, My experience sitting on a couple of committees up there is that we haven't seen a massive change in the amount of prescription codeine that's now going out. So I'd like to think that these steps that we've taken have actually led to many consumers seeking alternative treatments for their pain. I personally feel particularly around migraines, I'm doing a lot more of the triptans and those sort of things to actually reduce that. Um, I would have liked to have probably seen a little bit more pressure being put on the tertiary services about how we're going to manage them. We still have massive waiting lists for pain clinics and many GPs that I know don't feel that they're able to adequately help their patients around pain. Um, From a pharmacy point of view, a similar sort of thing is that our role in that, I think there's a lot of scope that we can do. So the chronic pain checks, I think, is a really good initiative uh, for us to be screening patients about pain control because my experience has been that patients will tell me things that they won't tell their doctors because I've got a different level of trust with them. Um, So I think that they're taking some of the right steps. I've always agreed with the rescheduling of codeine. And I'd like to see that now to start extend into a much better look at how we're managing the pain in our community without necessarily demonising things like the use of opioids. Um, From uh, chats that I've had with the guys in America, simply saying that all opioid-based painkillers have no pace and we should be cutting off patients has, has led to massive issues over there. So I think the adult conversation is not saying that these are all bad, but to say we really need to look at the complexity of this issue and build complex solutions to solve them. I think that um, there would be the perception amongst policymakers and, and governments that this step was the panchea that has solved everything and now they don't need to do anything else. I also think that that is the incorrect view. Um, picking up on, on what Jacinta was saying about the, the use of, of pain terminology and about um, using the right language, I think that's really important for pharmacists looking to continue to work to resolve the way we manage, manage pain in the community. Um, the chronic pain checks and those things go a, a really good way, but pharmacists already have the solutions in there. Just recently, um, the last couple of weeks, I had a patient who was on very significant doses of opioid painkillers who did have complex pain issues. Um, we've had long discussions about them. I have no assertions that he has a dependence to, to opioids, a physical dependence, but he has none of the characteristic signs of addiction and displays no addictive behaviour, and he has very good insight into pain and how he manages it but supply of those sort of pain medicines was a was a big factor for him and the security of supply I was fortunate enough to have a GP who was who was very reasonable with this and we were working together and I put him on stage supply which is something we normally reserve for people that we consider to be um, acting inappropriately but in this case it gave the doctor more comfort in a supplying those opioid pain relief in a consistent manner and then having good reporting back from the pharmacists. So I think that, um, as we've sort of said about, is this the the cure-all? No, it's it's not. It's the first step, and it's the first step to start having a really serious conversation. So while uh, changing the scheduling to codeine uh, may have brought some people out to seek treatment, 
Um, I think that for a medicine that we, we didn't see a lot of clinical benefit for and, and a fair bit of harm, that rescheduling that is now resulting in people either seeking help for treatment or realising they never needed it. And uh, I, for one, feel uh, grateful that we finally had this discussion. Everyone's known for years that it wasn't a tremendous medicine, but only through research like Jacinta's did we actually be able to arm that with evidence. And I loved being able to say to people, actually, I read this study that said this was no better than Panadol, and I trust the hell out of the person that gave it to me and did it, so I'm more than happy to back that up. And the, peop- the patients I worked with actually listened to that. So, um, no, I, I 100% think that we're having a good discussion, and I don't want to see people now pretend that that the problem is solved because it's not it's a very system-wide problem we need to start addressing from pain management through to addiction and dependence. Mark Norton describes the failure of schedule three in addressing codeine access and the relatively minor benefits of codeine in low doses. So before the rescheduling of codeine I think pharmacists uh, have or had uh, in many cases provided codeine to patients and and it was suboptimal we know that there's there's just a, too many anecdotal reports and I've worked in pharmacies and um, and and I've been one of those pharmacists that have provided uh, codeine to people requesting it and and had a very short consult and not the sort of consult that you'd expect to and that's just the the pressures that pharmacists have been or were under um, to supply a, a product, um, you know, direct product request. Um, I guess if we look at the the issue around does codeine work? Yes, it does work. Was it working in the doses that we were providing patients? Generally not. So. The, the decision that the TGA made was the right decision, in my view, um, based on the evidence that we've got. It, it is a largely ineffective opioid drug. We've got better ones. If people need opioids, we've got better ones that they can use. Um, most people, if they uh, that, that I saw coming into the pharmacies, they weren't coming in for really acute pain anyway. It was usually a chronic pain. Um, yes, some people will say they've got... Um, a, a migraine but we've got other agents that they could use for that anyway uh, the chronic pain uh, the codeine's really not the uh, we know that's not the treatment of choice anyway so in my view the codeine rescheduling was a good decision and um, and I think now that most pharmacists have moved on from the the hoo-ha that went on for a, a long period of time Penny Wood describes changes to codeine access from Schedule 2 through to Schedule 4 and that discussions about pain should not be about policing access but improving quality of life. Well, I was actually looking at codeine and codeine use in pharmacy as part of my PhD until it was half-scheduled and they mucked me up a bit. Um, I have a different, uh, interesting perspective. Initially, I thought... Um, pharmacists should be given the responsibility to to um, be handing it out and making recommendations with regard to codeine. And then through, I think once I started my research, I kind of changed my view on that. So we did um, a couple of papers with some honours students from La Trobe. Um, the first one was talking to pharmacists post the change from Schedule 2 to Schedule 3. And what they found resulting in that and some of the outcomes were that they were having really 
um, they were surprised at the number of people that were potentially overusing it and that um, they're having really um, real difficulty in talking to them about that that overuse. They they didn't know how to broach the subject. They didn't want to offend them, and they were, it was hard to pick who might be maybe misusing it as well. And and so that was number one issue. Um, and then we prior to the up scheduling, we also did a um, simulated patient study. So that was covert. So they didn't know that we were studying them. And we had uh, uh, some students go in and ask for codeine and they didn't have their licence. And what really concerned me with regard to that was um, if they didn't have their licence, they were just shut off and they weren't offered an alternative painkiller. They were just told, sorry, no, you can't have it, see you later, which was a big concern for, for me. The, and it was probably often more pharmacy staff than pharmacists, but it was like a policing role. You need your licence, and not not opening that discussion about why they wanted the codeine, what the codeine was for, what else was going on with their pain. Could there be an alternative? It was just shut down straight away, which was really kind of disappointing for me for our profession. So, and then the more I delved into codeine and looked at the um, um, the you know the doses that were available over the counter and the effectiveness of those doses and the variable metabolism and things like that, I, I thought, mm, maybe this isn't something we should be giving out. In saying that, I don't necessarily think that the doctors were going to do a better job because they don't have any more tools um, without real-time prescription monitoring. So hopefully with the introduction of real-time prescription monitoring, then that can be monitored better. And hopefully, again, that's not going to be used as a policing tool, but it's going to be used as a conversation starter. But I have my concerns that it will still be used as a policing tool. You're doing the wrong thing, cutting you off, not offering you an alternative, which is my whole fear with the whole safe script system. I think, I mean, there's definitely been some positives come out of it. And I think that's a confidence too. So I've spoken to some GPs and they said, I feel like now I'm confident, I can prescribe confidently because I know they're not getting it from anywhere else, whereas sometimes it's always that doubt in the back of my mind. But we've also had another experience that, again, I don't want to be doctor bashing, but with GPs where um, they're worried now about their opioid prescribing. The patients have got chronic pain, they've been on high doses of opioids, they don't have aberrant behaviour or anything, but they're worried about their opioid prescribing, so they said to the patient, we're going to have to stop your opioids. The patients got upset and distressed. There's a surprise. And then the doctor said, well, you've gotten angry at me. <laughs> I don't want to prescribe for you anymore. And we've had a case of a chronic pain patient then having to turn up to drug and alcohol when it's not a drug and alcohol issue, but at the drug and alcohol service because no one will prescribe for this poor person because he got upset when someone told him they were taking away his lifeline, which was, yeah. And I don't know if we're going to see more of that. And part of my concern, I suppose, is... Do we have the services in place to support these patients when they are pushed off from their usual their usual supply and or are we are they just going to be left high and dry? Who's going to take them on? It's about patient need and we shouldn't be be doing it according to numbers. It's about assessing what they need and and tapering opioids for some patients that are on high doses that's going to take years for them to come off. It's not something that's a quick it's a quick fix and we should be looking at it from that way. Actually they've been on opioids prescribed to them by a health professional for a number of years so we need to to do this slowly and appropriately and um, yeah these patients might still need to be on some of these opioids long term and then it's about doing the right thing about the next cohort of patients coming through and perhaps not 
setting them up to have those on high doses, ongoing, long-term opioids. It's about appropriately treating them from the start so we don't end up in this mess in the first place. When we did a forum about the codeine changes in Warnable and we were talking about that and they said, it's all very well you tell us not to put these patients on these pain medications, but what else have we got here in Warnable? We don't have any pain service. We don't have a multidisciplinary pain service. We don't have anything. So this is kind of it. So we're happy to take people off the medicines if we've got something else to to put them on and I guess that's where um, the pain revolution and the local pain educator program that 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 I'm doing the ride to raise money for is really important is to get those those champions and and people and to encourage GPs and support GPs and mentor GPs and mentor other health professionals to do that chronic pain or no persistent pain it's a better term persistent pain management we're doing a um, research project a pilot in the Western Victoria PHN with opioids so we're calling it the opioid early intervention study so what we're doing is at the moment we're collecting data business as usual then we're going to train pharmacists up um, upskill them with and provide them with the resources and knowledge to educate their patients when they first time come in with an opioid script so business as usual for the first um first six months and then for the next six months we'll upskill the the upskill the pharmacist so then um, when a patient comes in first time opioid script, we'll actually pay the pharmacist to spend up to half an hour educating the patient about treatment expectations, um, side effects, naloxone, everything and everything, um, and then to see if that actually has an impact on A, the patient's knowledge about their medication, B, their ongoing use, their pain, um, and whether perhaps they become dependents. So at IMIA last year, there was an American anaesthetist that came over and spoke a lot about the opioid use in, in America, and she said that every patient that's prescribed an opioid should be prescribed naloxone. I mean, I don't know cost-benefit, whether that's worth it, but she, her reasoning was not just to protect... She goes, I don't think everyone's going to overdose, but it also sends that message to the patient and the family that this medicine is actually quite can be quite dangerous and that so much so that we're going to give you the antidote in case you accidentally take too much or someone else gets it so that kind of sends that message oh what I'm taking could be more serious than what I what I think and I just don't think there's that community awareness so I did a HMR last year and um, with this guy who had the worst uh, peripheral edema I've ever seen or lymphadenopathy I think it was but um, sitting on the chair legs up they were swollen Um, he'd been given hydromorphone for his pain he didn't even realise it was a, a like a morphine-type painkiller. He didn't really know much about that. He'd been suffering from anxiety, understandably, because obviously he can't move very well, all those types of things. So then he'd been prescribed oxazepam as well. And then he's having a lot of trouble sleeping, so he's taking his wife's temazepam as well on top of that. And and when I explained to them about these medications, and he was, he was perfectly happy, oh, no... Um, his wife was like, well, I'm not letting him have my sleeping tablets anymore. And he, he actually said the hydromorphone was not doing anything for his pain, but no one had actually talked to him about it. And he didn't realise the connection between his constipation and the hydromorphone as well. And he said, no, I just, I, I'm happy to stop it. I'm happy to stop it. I want, you know, The best thing I've found for my pain is a sheepskin rug that helps. But no one had actually had that conversation with him about... So he just kept getting it. Oh, even if you just explained to the patient, you know, you might feel, you might get your symptoms back for three days or so when you stop it, but then that, it'll, it'll peter out and it'll be fine. And if they know that, and I think that's, again, with painkillers, that's the important thing about setting that expectation. 
and I shouldn't call them painkillers because they're not killers. That's the whole, whole point with pain relievers is setting that expectation. They're not going to make your pain disappear and actually pain has a role and it's there for a reason. It's to prevent us from um, doing further damage so that we actually need to have that that little bit of pain there in the first place. So we're not trying to get rid of it. What we're trying to do is improve your functioning and quality of life so that it can get back to some sort of normal level for, for them. Tiffany Huxhagen describes the difficulties of accessing alternative options to medicines for pain relief. What I would really like to see is the government coming on board with more complementary therapies um, in terms of the PBS more than anything. Um, so with the coding law changes... It was a necessary move, in my opinion, as a dispensary technician because we'd see people asking for the same thing over and over again and not wanting to hear about the alternative therapies to actually manage their pain rather than just band-aid it with coding. Um, What is really upsetting me from my side of the fence is that if I say to a patient, you know, magnesium would really help, or um, topical therapies would really help, they're not on the PBS. And if you've got a pensioner who doesn't have a whole lot of income, doesn't have a whole lot of disposable income, they can't take it because they simply can't afford it. Um, We do see a fair bit of chronic pain. I myself live with chronic pain. My partner lives with chronic pain. And it is expensive to manage because we're not concession and card holders. Our medications cost as much as they do but at the same time if those alternate therapies were even medicare subsidized or if i knew that i could go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist would be able to use some kind of government scheme to get me on a pain management plan because i don't qualify because i am too young my condition was not inflicted at work i don't qualify for these plans so my physio cost me a lot of money. My chiropractor cost me a lot of money. My doctor's visits cost me a lot of money. And quite simply, I can't afford it. So I just sit here and I live with my pain. So I'd like the government to step up and sort of think, well, we've got this chronic condition. We need to manage it. It's costing us a fortune. It's costing our patients a fortune. Jared McMore talks about the way pain is categorised and funded by the health system how this affects people's access to multi-provided care and how Chronic Pain Australia would like to see funding for allied health services expanded. One of the things that we're advocating with in Chronic Pain Australia is the fact that we pay for PBS and we pay for Medicare in a way that is virtually unlimited. So a person who is in pain will have ready access to medicines unlimited forever. But when we get to allied health, first of all, it's not readily recognised as a chronic condition in its own right. It's treated as a symptom of other conditions, which means you, you don't get access to, say, NDIS for chronic pain, and you don't always get access to a chronic pain management plan, which you can get your six referrals on to Allied Health. You don't always. But when you do, six runs out real quick if you're in chronic pain. You, know? you can imagine if somebody's overweight and with arthritis, they're going to need to see a dietitian, uh, potentially an exercise physiologist. Yeah. And those things run out. So we are, policy basically means that we are saying to people, medicine is your option because we won't fund anything else. You know, a GP can refer to allied health professionals, which will then be funded by Medicare. Um, so if you've got somebody in chronic pain, yeah, team care arrangement. So if you've got somebody in chronic pain, you need allied health. How quickly are you going to run through consultations with other allied health professionals? So this is a big problem. They're actually pushing for twenty. That's what CPA is asking for. 
whether we can get it or not, that's another thing. But, um, you know, what that means is we are in a position where our health system is funded to ensure people stay on medications and not get other treatments because that's the only thing that's perpetually funded. It's the only thing that's perpetually funded. So if, if we can't get somebody into a physiotherapist and that's what they need, well, we better give them medication because that's all we can treat them with. And that's the way our system is currently um, engineered. It's not good. Elise Apolloni discusses the guidance role of pharmacists in providing safe access to medicines and advice and keeping this focused on the individual in pain. It's been a whirlwind, hasn't it? <laughs> I, think, I think that I'm all for making sure that medicine access is safe and appropriate, but I'm also for empowering patients at the same time. And I think that in the management of pain, the patient is so crucial to that. It is their pain. It is their experience. And I think that we need to acknowledge how, how our patients have been managing their pain, often without too much guidance for many, many decades before these rules have come along. I think that it's very difficult um, in some areas of Australia to get access to a doctor to prescribe such medicines. I did like the idea of, um, you know, pharmacists having an accept when or the ability to prescribe codeine under certain acute pain circumstances. But I also understand the reasons why that was not necessarily implemented at the time. I do think I have a fairly balanced view of it because I see I see all sides. I understand I understand why the TGA felt that was the right decision. I understand their reasonings in why they might want to upschedule it, but I also understand from, you know, a patient perspective, you know, how disempowering this is for them and their pain and how from a pharmacist perspective it um, does limit our choice of medicines that we can recommend um, with evidence. But at the end of the day, I think the patient needs to be at the centre of whatever we do. And if we don't have um, the right mechanisms, the right ability for doctors to see patients quickly to make these clinical calls, then I think there needs to be an easy way for us to help those people. Simon Carroll talks about individualised care for people in pain. I think in the pain space, the major issue is, is the fragmentation of care because each person's pain is different. Each person requires probably a different treatment pathway um, to give them a full scope or a, a full range of, of care for their pain. It might be medication, but it might be a whole lot of other things as well. And because care is so fragmented, most people actually don't find all the avenues that they can. Um, and I think that's a problem overall. If, if we look at pain as a chronic disease, that's a, an enormous problem overall because that fragmentation of care, people don't talk to each other, health professionals don't talk to each other, and there aren't obvious pathways to direct people through. So if you go down to the straight medication or the, the, the medicines part of it, um, again, it's very individual what is going to work for one person, not going to work for another. And what levels a person needs is going to be different between person to person, the cause of their pain, the nature of their pain, the duration of their pain, what other lifestyle changes they've made according to that. So I think it's too complex to simply go to, let's do this with opioids, let's do this with um, this drug case, let's make everyone do this. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's got to be more dynamic. 
Liam Murphy describes the conflicting issues around needing safe, effective acute pain relief, while recognising that this access can create a barrier for people in accessing adequate long-term treatment for pain. Liam also discusses the mental health aspects of pain, even in temporary instances of pain. This was actually something... So initially when I first started working in pharmacy, I really didn't like dealing with coding. Um, It just felt that the way that it had been managed and, you know, there was obviously quite a lot of people that had been addicted to codeine and not that there's any issue with that because, but it all, it felt like they were forced into a corner where they had to be a bit deceiving um, in order to get it. And the body language would would often convey that. Uh, So that a lot of my early uneasy time spent in pharmacy were done or were spent dealing with codeine and with pseudoephedrine. Fast forward a few years and I'm working up on a ski mountain by myself uh, where people are legitimately getting hurt quite a lot and also dealing with colds and they're burning the candle at both ends. And, you know, they're there on holidays. They just want to make the most of their holiday. Uh, And these products, which I initially wasn't a big fan of, became really useful tools to allow me to service the community, allow people to make the most of their holidays. Initially, I was opposed to the um, upscheduling of codeine uh, because I felt, you know, as far, like, personally, I I got more confident in my practice and more confident um, with dealing with codeine and talking to people about it. Uh, But one of the things I also found was that it was merely just a Band-Aid solution for pain relief uh, for a lot of people, and they... it wasn't allowing them to, or it was in, off, in many cases preventing them from exploring other methods of pain relief. Um, so it is, the change was something that I thought was going to make my life a lot harder up on the mountain uh, because I couldn't really do anything about it uh, because the, the laws override my professional wishes. Um, I got through the last season pretty fine with it. I was, um, one of the tricky things I'd found was that there was, um, there's very kind of unclear evidence, um, relating to acute injuries and the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, and the role that they play. Uh, we had a pharmacy student come in for a couple of weeks and she had to do a, a small research project and we put her to the task of working out, you know, what are the risks, what are the benefits of uh, using non-steroidals. And essentially there was evidence to support every which way, but the the bulk of the evidence was suggesting that there's some slowing of healing time. Uh, so it was really interesting having um, the conversations with people when they would be coming in on the mountain and, you know, oh, I've hurt my ankle, can I just have some Nurofen? And, you know, digging a bit deeper into the... Um, into the cause of the injury and how recent it was and it was the previous history or anything like that. Uh, And then, you know, working out how I could educate people to sort of steer away from maybe using anti-inflammatories as a first-line treatment and and more looking towards paracetamol, um, compression, ice, elevation. And even then, um, the further you read into the evidence, um, there's some evidence sort of going away from rice being the ideal method Um, so it's just this evolving, um, and sort of ongoing issue of trying to navigate your way through the evidence and offering best, best 
practice and and how you can counsel people and essentially as a pharmacist you can you can offer people the best advice but you can only really lead a horse to water um there at the end of the day they're going to make the decisions on what they want to do um but i found it was an interesting experience um I find myself often frustrated sometimes with patients that will come in and profess their um, superior knowledge and understanding of how the human body works and and the the balance of the um, information that we have available to us um, and tell me that, no, they don't need to worry about icing it or, or making sure that they drink enough water or, or doing anything else because, I oh, know this is just what works for me. Um, but you you learn to bite your tongue and just realize that you can't you can't completely change everyone's point of view or understanding, um, especially in just one one interaction. One of the um, on a bit of a side note, one of the initiatives that I um, put in to my pharmacy practice up on the mountain in Perisher, uh, working by myself, we quite often get overrun with about three or four people in the pharmacy, if not more, at the same time. Um, and you have to be really good at managing your time and your attention between different people to make sure that everyone's happy that they're getting um, looked after well. Uh, actually, having done a diploma of education and learning about classroom management was a really useful tool in delegating and making sure that people are having, you know, being looked after and, and satisfied. But uh, one of the tools I'd come up with was uh, basically doing our own customized CMIs on on Panadine Fort, which is our most prescribed medication up on the mountain, uh, not surprisingly. Um, so I basically took what I would say in a spiel and I put it on a prescription backing. The benefit of this is it was something that I could hand to patients if I had four people in the pharmacy and they presented with the script and I say, read through this. This is basically everything I would say to you. If you have any questions afterwards, like we can go through it once I'm giving you your medication. Um, what the other benefit I found with this was as far as with pain um, and with injuries, it's not just the physical component of the injury, but it's also the mental side of the injury. Uh, having done a pretty bad number on my shoulder early in my intern year when I was living up in Noosa, um, I went from training for footy a few times a week doing boxing, surfing as much as I could and being as physically active as I possibly could to going to work and sitting on the couch. And a month or so of that definitely put a lot of weight on my mental health. Um, and it, it kind of made me realise that it's not just the physical, um, the physical effects of the injury but also the mental effects. Um, so I always make a mention of... Um, the mental effects with injury and, and stuff that I like to recommend is coloring in provided that they haven't broken a wrist or um, also meditation and mindfulness that I find is a really good place to start. Um, there's heaps of apps that sort of offer an insight into meditation and mindfulness and they give a free trial and I find they're, they're quite good places to start um, as it allows people the ability or gives them a chance to sort of at least tackle head on the mental challenges that are going to be faced along with the physical challenges that they're going to be facing. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. 
If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast.